So the, the uh, chaos of Christmas is behind us, isn't it? And the dust of that festive season has finally well and truly settled. So I wonder this. I wonder this past Christmas, what impression have we given our unbelieving friends and family about the true message of biblical Christianity? So this past Christmas, over the last few weeks, what impression have we given unbelievers about the message of Christianity? Now, you can maybe see what I mean, but we know this, don't we? Rightly or wrongly, Christmas is a time of increased evangelistic activity. It is a little bit, isn't it? So maybe we've tried to speak to unbelieving family at Christmas time if we try to do that, or maybe we've tried to invite some to a guest service. Maybe we've tried to incorporate a verse or two of Scripture in a Christmas card. But what impression have we given the unbelieving people we know? What impression have we given them the actual message of Christianity? What do they know? I mean, they know, of course, that at Christmas we celebrate the birth of someone special. They know that, definitely. Hopefully they know that we believe that someone special to be God himself taken among flesh. But beyond that, what do they know? In short, do our unbelieving friends and family know what God became man to do? Do they know what God took upon flesh to achieve? Well, this morning, as we continue in Luke's gospel, we really do come a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment. This is a moment where Jesus, just a few weeks old, he is carried into the temple and he encounters a couple of individuals, doesn't he? So you have this encounter with Simeon, first of all, and then there's this encounter with Anna. And as we look at these things, what I think we are shown by God Do you know, I think we're shown snapshots of what Jesus' life will be like. So it's the idea that in this section, God gives us little glimpses. And it's glimpses into the mission that Jesus had come to fulfill. Snapshots, you get the idea? Glimpses into what what is ahead. And I want to spell it out for you, especially if you're visiting to know what we're going to do for, for a short time as we work through this text, we're going to notice three glimpses of Jesus' coming mission, why God had taken on upon himself flesh, three glimpses, and then at the end we'll notice a response to Jesus, a necessary required response. Have we got it? What are we going to do? We're going to notice three glimpses into Jesus' mission, and then we'll think about a response to our Lord. So I'll ask you, just if you have a copy of the Bible with you, to maybe turn to this section of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, from 21, 22, maybe have that open, and we'll do our best to, to try and put some of the verses up on the screen so that we can just work through this together. So we have the idea, we know what we're going to do, we're going to know how we approach this. So the first snapshot of Jesus coming ministry is a mission of great submission. So that's the first heading. A mission, we're going to get a little glimpse into the fact that Jesus has come for a mission of great submission. Submission. Okay. I think it's, it's commonly said, isn't it? You've heard it said that over Christmas and over New Year, 
we very often tend to lose days or lose track of what day it is. Isn't that the case with Christmas? Because Christmas, you know, we get off work at different days. Christmas is on a different day. So over Christmas and New Year, sometimes we're sitting at home on our armchair, on our sofa, scratching our head, and the days have seemed to blur into one another. It's like, have I, did I lose a Wednesday there? Did I lose a Thursday? And it all, it all becomes a bit strange, doesn't it, over Christmas and New Year? Now, <coughs> you would be forgiven for thinking in those terms this morning. And you'd be forgiven for sitting there thinking, have I, at some point, have I lost a Sunday somewhere along the line? Now, do you see, see what I mean? Uh, two weeks ago, Christmas Day, we looked at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Then last week, Will was preaching from somewhere else. And then all of a sudden today, we've just jumped on a bit in Luke chapter 2. So maybe you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, how have we done that? Have I over Christmas and New Have I missed a Sunday somewhere where we dealt with that middle section? Maybe you're thinking that. Well, that's not. Have you missed a Sunday? No, you have not missed a Sunday. What we're doing is we're leaving that little middle section there for the time being, largely because it wasn't all that long ago that we covered it as a congregation. And I think it's all right to leave it. Why? Because we know the background so well, don't we? So what's in the background? The angel. Jesus has just been born, hasn't he? The angels have appeared on the hillside. The shepherds have visited. And then in the immediate background, Jesus has just been circumcised. I think all of us in the room were comfortable. We know what the, the, background, uh, the background is. So the question is, what do we have here today? Well, if you've got it in front of you, at the start of our section, in verse 22, I don't know if we can project that or not, but verse 22, the start of our section, what's the first thing that happens if you look at it? Do you notice Jesus has just been, been born? And do you notice that Mary and Joseph now, they travel what is quite a great distance to Jerusalem, to the temple. Now they're traveling with Jesus as a baby and they're traveling to engage or participate in two rituals or two ceremonies. That's the first thing. Now, let me, can I just, will you permit me just to briefly mention the, the, the two rituals, very briefly. First, if you notice in verse 22, we have purification. Okay, that's the first ritual, purification. So what was that? Well, in Leviticus, so the Old Testament, under the, the Old Testament law, in Leviticus chapter 12, if we were to read that, and you can read that uh, this afternoon, Leviticus 12, what you would find there are stipulations in the law about what was to happen after the birth of a child. So listen carefully. When a, a, a mother gave birth to a son, not a daughter, son, yes, the son had to be circumcised eighth day, but then what to, had to happen under the Old Testament law is that about a month later, I think it's 33 days after the circumcision, the mother of the family had to travel to Jerusalem to the temple for the mother to offer sacrifices for her ritual cleansing, for their ritual purity and their purification. You get the idea? So there's seven days, eighth day, what happens? Circumcision of the boy, then stay apart for another 33 days, then travel, 
offer sacrifices for cleansing. Everyone's got it, don't they? But wait, as an aside, do you notice in verse 24 what Mary's sacrifices were? I find this quite interesting. I'm sure you do as well in verse 24. Mary offers either it's a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Do we see what that is? I think we know, don't we, that that was the poor person's sacrifice. So that was a sacrifice that was only acceptable if a person actually couldn't afford to offer a lamb. What are you seeing there? What are you confronted with? You're confronted again, Christian friend, with the humble estate to which your Lord came, the poverty that Jesus embraced in order to secure for you your salvation. So what's the first ritual or ceremony? It's purification, isn't it? Okay. What about the second? It's the second. It's presentation. Because again, Old Testament law, this time in Exodus chapter 13, we see that at the birth, not just of a son, but at the birth of a firstborn son, the law actually demanded more. So under the law, symbolically, the firstborn son, he belonged to God himself. And so what the parents had to do under the law, they had to try and redeem the son, to to buy back the son. And they did this through the payment of a ransom price. So the parents of a firstborn son, they had to pay a fee in order to ransom the child. Everyone with me still? So we have purification and we have presentation to the Lord. Now, okay, right. If we take all of that, (coughs) we gather all of that information about Mary and Joseph, we take it all together. I wonder what could we do? What should we do with all of that information this morning at St. Peter's? You know what I I think we could do, Christian friends? I think we could consider the example of parenting, the example of pious, godly parenting, that God provides us in Scripture right there. And I think you can see that, can you? Certainly if you think just for a moment about a very, very young couple, Mary and Joseph. What do you see when you consider Mary and Joseph in this portion of Scripture? You see a couple who are seeking to bring up their child. Now listen, from day one in obedience to the Lord their God. Isn't that right? Isn't that, that's the example of parenting you have. And remember how old they are. Remember what we've said before. They're so young. And yet, no, no matter the effort that is involved in traveling with a baby, anyone who's done that knows there's, wow, there's effort there. No matter the effort that's involved in traveling all the way to Jerusalem with a baby, no matter the disruption to the routines for a newborn baby, no matter, we, again, we know that can be a, a disaster, no, no, matter, no matter the humiliation they have in traveling with this baby and offering the, the poor person's sacrifice publicly, doesn't matter. What have you got? You've got, you've got parents here who are, who are desperate to, to raise their child in a godly manner, in a godly way. Is it not an example for us? The parents, the parents of St. Peter's. So we could, we could do that. I think there's something else, though. I, I do want to ask you whether, as we read this portion of Scripture earlier on, did you notice the repetition in the text? 
There's, there's the question. Did you? Did you pick up on what is repeated in the text? Now, uh, I forgot to count it, but I think it's five times or six times something's repeated. So we really should have got it. So five times, I think it is, Luke mentions the law. Did you notice it now? If you scan it, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, verse 39. <laughs> Five times Luke is just saying, law, law, law. Now, as a congregation, do we see what the author is doing here? Here, Luke is giving us a glimpse into the mission that Jesus Christ was here to fulfill, aren't we? He's showing us law, 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 law. He's showing what God had become man to do. Here is this one, born to Mary, who is going to go in his life and fulfill the law's demands. That's what Luke is saying to you as he repeats that. He's saying time and time again, Luke, from the very earliest age, from his very infancy, here is the one who is going to fulfill everything about God's law. Now, I wonder what you think about that this morning. If you're new uh, to biblical Christianity, maybe visiting, maybe tuning in, maybe your first thought, if you're still with us, maybe your first thought is, so what? Like, here's a baby who's going to grow up and he's going to fulfill the law and he's going to live in obedience to the law. And maybe you say, whoop de doo (laughs) What difference does that make? Why is that so special? Why is that exciting? But I want you to understand our predicament for a moment. What God reveals in the Bible is that if we are going to have a right relationship with him, okay, so if we are going to commune with God, okay, if we're going to get heaven and all that good stuff, what God reveals is he demands, now wait for it, he demands moral perfection. So a holy God demands holy people, rightly, fittingly, okay? What's the problem with that, friends? moral perfection. The problem is not that we quite do not quite hit that bar. What's the problem? The problem is we don't get anywhere near that bar of moral perfection. And so do you not now see why it is that the Christian church just embraces this and we rejoice and delight in this? Who is born here? Here is born one who from the very start meets that standard perfectly And therefore, here, born to Mary, is one who can represent us to God. And I want you to hear this. I want you to think about Calvary. I want you to think about the cross and this section of Scripture. Now, listen carefully. Who is Jesus? Why is the cross important? Listen, Jesus Christ is that costly, sacrificial lamb that God has provided for us free of charge. Now think about Calvary, think about this portion of Scripture. What's so special about Calvary? Jesus Christ is the only one who can and has provided purification for his people's sins. Who's Jesus? Why is, why is, the, why is Golgotha so important? Because there by his blood, Jesus paid the price. And he ransomed his people. And we ask, but how is that possible? How is that sacrifice in any way acceptable And we look here and we realize why. All because from the very first, as a wee baby from his infancy, Jesus had come to fulfill all of the law's demands. 
So we see a glimpse, don't we? Don't we see a snapshot of a mission, of great submission, submission to the law? Secondly, we also see there's a, there's a second snapshot, I think, and it's, of, it's a glimpse of a mission of great scope. Great scope. Um, the stewarding rota. <coughs> excuse me. As I clear my throat. The stewarding rota. The welcoming team. With my tongue firmly in my cheek, I wonder if these things were as much a part of first century temple worship as they are in the modern church. You know, the, the stewarding rota and the welcoming team. Probably not, right? But there is some, I think, correlation, isn't there? Because as Mary and Joseph, they travel, they arrive in Jerusalem, and as they, if you can picture it, they ascend the temple steps, they go up into the temple to offer these sacrifices. What happens? But they are, at the door of the temple, if you like, they are greeted. And they are greeted by this first character uh, that we have here, uh, this chap called Simeon. Okay, maybe he's on stewarding Rota, the, the temple. So you are just now, Christian friend, you are face to face with Simeon in the temple courts. So what I want us to do is to just to try and answer a couple of questions about this man. First is really what we are told about Simeon, what we're told about him. Can I just immediately uh, turn it over to you so I've said you're face-to-face with Simeon, Christian friend. How do you picture him in your mind's eye? Simeon. You've thought about Simeon before over the years. Do you picture him as a, a, an old chap, an elderly bloke, Simeon? Well, I suppose it's a fair assumption to make. I mean, we're not told that he's elderly. But he is the recipient of a great and wonderful promise from God, isn't he? What's the promise? God has said to Simeon, you shall not die. So his death is in view. I think that's why we think he's elderly. You shall not die until your eyes have seen. You have actually seen with your your own eyes the Christ. So maybe he's elderly. I think it's a fair assumption to make. But there's something more important that we're told. And that's the fact that, see this guy, Simeon, he is a godly chap. He is a faithful man. And I would love for the men uh, at St. Peter's first to wake up and then second not to make the mistake that I have made with Simeon. And for the guys, I'd love you to see that Simeon is not a priest. I made that mistake. Don't make that mistake. So when you think, guys, if you think about Simeon, do not think about him as the same as Zechariah before. That's how I was thinking. I was getting them confused a little bit. I was thinking about an old or an older priest, you know, somebody consecrated by God, you know, set apart. This bloke who's in and out of the temple every day because he's on temple service, that is not Simeon. Can I tell you who Simeon is, guys? Simeon is an ordinary bloke. Simeon's perhaps an older working bloke, straightforward guy, down, just a dude, just a bloke. But what is emphasized about him? 
This is a godly man. This is a guy who knows the Holy Spirit, a a man who is used by the Holy Spirit, a a man who is looking to God for his hope. He's trusting in God. Is that not an example for us as men, as peers? So we answer the first question, what are we told about this man? I think a second question, though, is what does Simeon say? (laughs) Or rather, I think I'll correct myself, Because the second question really is, what does Simeon sing? Because you'll have noticed, have you, that in keeping with the early chapters of Luke, we have here another song. So maybe if we look at it in verse 29 and 30, we've got this song, and it is a very important song. And so maybe what I'll do, if you'll allow it, and if you promise to walk with me on this, I'll maybe draw out one or two things from this song. Will you come with me in it, in the song? Yes. You will, right? In fact, it's musical. So why don't we just, let's have a triplet. Okay, let's have a triplet. Let's look at just three things really briefly in the song, just in a word. So look at the song with me. First of all, do you notice? So he's taking Jesus into his arms. Have you got the picture? And he's singing in the temple court. Do you notice, first of all, he starts the song with a sense of relief? They're amazing words, these in verse 29. Do you notice them? So he's singing. Can you imagine singing this? He's singing of allowing, allowing, being let, let your servant depart in peace. Allow me, allow me to die. Like, can you see what's going on here? And he's had this promise, you you won't die until you see the Christ. He sees the Christ. Allow me to die. What, What is the imagery there, do you think? I think it's maybe the imagery of a a sentry at night or, you know, like the idea of an ancient night watchman. And he has been relieved from duty. Why? Because the safety of the dawn has come. You you can go. You can go. Isn't that the idea? He's, he's He's been promised. Your eyes will see the Christ. And now he holds Jesus and he looks at Jesus and the sunrise is, is here. And now he's able to say, I can die. I can die. Let me go. I can, I can go in peace. And I ask you at St. Peter's, what is the lesson? Oh, the critical lesson that we get there. It's such harmony, tranquility in the face of death is only possible through the gospel. Don't we know that to be true? We worry about death, fearful in the face of death, tranquility and peace, even at the point of death, is possible only because of Jesus Christ. So we see definitely a sense of relief from this man. Then a second thing we see in the song is, is a, a close connection. And you look at me maybe and you're, you're wondering, what does he mean a close connection? But you see it, I think, in verse 30. Do, do you know what? You notice what Simeon doesn't say. And I I really had to wrestle with this because it's unexpected. What would you expect him to say if he's taken from Mary? He goes to Mary and he takes Jesus into his arms and he begins to sing. And he looks at Jesus and it's, behold my, or what does he, does he say, this is my savior? That's what you would expect him to say, wouldn't you? It's alas, the Christ, my savior. And do you notice he doesn't quite say that? You know, he speaks of God's salvation. This, this is holding Jesus. This is God's salvation. What is the lesson for, for us there? 
surely it is that absolutely everything in God's redemption, everything in reconciliation with God, it is bound up with Jesus himself, isn't it? Everything is caught up in, in, in Jesus. Everything is centered on Jesus. It's the lesson that, that salvation is less of a plan and it's much more a person. Everything is about Jesus. And then the third of the triplet, I think we have to notice him singing about the breadth of, of, of salvation. I think we see it in verses 31 and 32. Now, maybe look at it with me if you've got it. He's singing as he holds Jesus, and he sings of, look at the language, and and imagine how surprising it would have been for people. He sings of all peoples. He sings of this Jesus being a light, he says, for whom? A light for the, the Gentiles. You can see that that would have been amazing to hear in the temple courts in the first century. Here is a light for the, for the Gentiles. Can you see what's going on? Here, Simeon is rejoicing in the worldwide scope of the gospel. That's what he's rejoicing in. He's rejoicing in the fact that though Jesus, of course, was born under the Jewish law, he was born under the law of Israel, Simeon's rejoicing that this is a salvation through Jesus that is available for anyone in any place who will turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And and, and truly, as you recognize that, Christian friends, don't you feel in your heart, if you grasp that, don't you feel that you want to be there with Simeon? You want to be singing alongside him? Don't you want to be rejoicing with Simeon? Because what do you know to be true? Here in Simeon's arms, this little baby, here was a savior for you. This little child born to Mary, this is a savior for me. Savior for you, a savior for us. And should we not go out and tell the world that regardless of what these people have done in Dundee and Broughty Ferry, and regardless of, of where they've been born, where they're from, regardless of any of that, here in Simeon's arms is a saviour for them. So we see a, a, a glimpse in a mission of great submission, a mission of great scope. And then the third glimpse is a mission of great, great suffering glimpse into a mission of great suffering. We can try, you and I, we can try hard, but I don't think you and I can even begin, (laughs) can't even begin to imagine how thrilling these weeks must have been for Joseph and for Mary. Like uh, for, for any couple, I suppose, or most couples, uh, having a baby exciting times usually that's the way of it imagine it for for, imagine for Joseph and Mary imagine what they've had going on in the last few weeks angelic appearances for a star you know divine promises virginal conceptions Uh, and now they're hearing spirit inspired songs about their child So no wonder we are told at this point that they marveled at what was going on and what was being said. They they marveled. This was exciting. This was thrilling. But do you know, I think it's just right at this moment in the temple courts there that it changes somewhat. Because just as Simeon 
ends his song, what happens right at that point is that an ominous note sounds. The musicians could tell me what that would be, a diminished seventh or something. But at the end of the song, an ominous, really ominous note sounds. Now, you maybe wonder what I'm talking about, but you'll see it in verses 34 and 35. Now, I think maybe it's at this point, I could have this wrong, speculation, but I think it's maybe at this point, he's kind of holding up Jesus. And maybe at this moment, because he stops singing, he hands this wee baby back to his mum, and maybe the baby does that thing and wriggles with contentment because away from this strange man and back to mum, right? But he hands Jesus back, perhaps. But look, he turns to Mary. Simeon turns to Mary. Look what he does, alluding to it. I think it's Isaiah 8. What he does is he prophesies about this baby's life. Now, look what he says. He promises Mary that this baby's life will not just be a, 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 you know, a bed of roses. It will not be just sweetness and light. And he promises that the chief characteristic of this child's life will be sheer hostility. This little baby's life, characterized by hostility. Do you see that a sign that is opposed? Isn't that a thought for us? You, you, you think about it, this little, just a few weeks old, wriggling in his mother's arms, and, and Simeon is prophesying through the Holy Spirit and saying, yeah, looks, yeah, looks like everything's going to be great. This one is the one who is going to be despised and rejected by men. Isn't this something? Now, you have this in front of you on the screen and, and in, in your hands, this idea. I wonder... At this ominous note, I wonder what catches your eye or what caught your eye in the reading. What caught your eye about it? I think it very much could be the the knock-on consequences of this hostility for Mary herself. Because come on, people, isn't that moving or something if we engage with it? So she is told that just as her son's hands would be and feet would be in death, So because of this hostility, her own soul will be pierced. It's a mum hearing that. She holds her little child. Isn't it, it in a sense, such will be the opposition and suffering that your son will go through. Quite simply, it's going to break your heart in the years to come. That's moving, isn't it? Isn't it troubling in a sense? So that could catch us, catch our eye. I think there's something else. And and, and really, it's got to draw us in. It has to draw us in. So to, to consider it for a moment, what I want to do is to take you back to your schooling, as depressing as that may be for some of us. And I want to, th- want to take you back to your early science classes in school. For some of us, that is a long time ago. Maybe we struggle to remember our science classes in school, do we? No, you'll remember. You will. You'll remember one of the early science experiments that you are made to do, especially if you went to school in Scotland or or England, I'm sure. Okay, what was the experiment? You'll remember it. You think, I don't remember any. You will remember it. So you were given solutions, maybe in a beaker, one of those trays. What What were you told to do? You had to determine whether these 
these solutions were acidic or they're acid or alkali or neutral. Do you remember? You remember. Come on, you're not kidding me. What was that? What did you have to do? Yes, you do remember. You were given, there was different ways to do it, but you were given a bit of paper. Little bits of paper sometimes. Different ways to do it. You could have dropped it, but little bits of paper. Everything was about the paper. So the bits of paper that you were to dip into these, these beakers of the solution, they, everything was, the, the paper revealed the nature of the solution. Do you remember? You would put, you'd dip the little paper into the solution, turn red, it's acid. I think. Don't tell me if I'm wrong right now. I know at the door. It's going to happen, isn't it? At the door, I'm going to be corrected. With a little bit of paper, you dip it in, it turns red, it's acid. Nothing happens to it. It's neutral. Turns blue, it's alkaline. Everything was about the bit of paper. The paper was the key thing. The paper revealed the nature of the solution. Everything was about the paper. Do you not see something here about Jesus? Look at this. Consider Simeon's last words in verse 35. Look at the last words. So he speaks of the impact Jesus' ministry and life is going to have on the Jews at the time. Do you notice what he says? He says, like the paper, Jesus' life is going to have a revealing effect. Do you notice this? Simeon's promising that a person's true heart before God, that will be exposed by their attitude to their their relationship with Jesus Christ, that the ultimate litmus test of a a person's spiritual standing before God, the litmus test was their attitude to and their acceptance of Jesus. And you can see surely why that has to draw us in. Why? Because it wasn't just true of the Jews in the first century. That is true of all of us in here today. So I ask you, regardless of how many times you've been at St. Peter's or whether this is the first time tuning into our, our YouTube channel, doesn't matter your situation. Right now, how are you seeking to relate to God? So for some, you might be very, very new to Christianity and it might be that thing where you're trying to turn over a new leaf for 2023 a new leaf of maybe church attendance or, or connecting with the church in some way. Is that how you're trying to relate to God? Or maybe you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. But maybe as you analyze your heart just now, you see yourself defaulting to trying to actually earn God's favor, trying to merit God's favor in your life. Well, this morning right here from God's word, you be reminded where everything rises and where everything falls. Everything is dependent upon your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you love him, whether you bow to Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether you have repented and believed in Jesus, that is the greatest, most important question of all. So we've done, I think, what we set out to do. We said we'd work through this portion of Scripture, looking at the little snapshots, the three snapshots of Jesus' coming mission. But I do just want to close very briefly in just a word 
with one last matter, because I think maybe perhaps fulfilling Deuteronomy 19's demand for two witnesses, you have a second person here, and it's Anna. And she's somebody who shows us a response to Jesus. So what do we have in just a word? Well, before we get to the response from Anna, do you not think we should at least pay some heed to the challenge that Anna brings with her? Don't you think so, friends? Because if we have had an example for the parents at St. Peter's, and if we have had an, an example for the guys, the blokes of St. Peter's, do we not in Anna... And I tread carefully. Do we not have in Anna an example here for the women, for the ladies of the church, and maybe especially for those who might be getting on in years? After all, what are we told about her life? Do you see it? Verse 30, what is it? 36, 37. It's quite something, isn't it? So having lost her husband when she was just a a very young woman, it would seem to have been that she lost her husband maybe when she's in her very early 20s. She lives the rest of her life into old age as a widow. Imagine in the first century world, what do we know about that? There would be an immense vulnerability for her all of those years now. Oh, wait, though. How are those decades, all those decades, how are they characterized? Don't you love it? I mean, do you see in Anna what is a breathtaking piety? I mean, isn't it beautiful, don't you think? Isn't it an absolute stunning devotion to God? How would you describe Anna? What do you see in Anna? Here's a woman who absolutely loves corporate worship. Like, here's a woman who just can't wait to get to the temple, encounter God, and to sing praises to God, to be with God's people. She loves it. What else do you see with Anna? Don't you see she's a woman who really thoroughly embraces spiritual disciplines? Are we hearing this, ladies? Look at her, embracing this desperation to get to the temple, yes. But she's embraced fasting, and she's seeking God through prayer. She's a woman who loves to pray, wrestles with prayer. Isn't this an example to follow? But then, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. What is this? We're talking about a a response to Jesus. What is the response to Jesus? Well, we close it off with verse 38. Look at that. How does she respond to Jesus? Look, she praises Jesus. We expected to read that, didn't we? And you've got to love God's timing, don't you? Love it. She arrives in the temple just at the point where Simeon stops singing and stops speaking, just at that moment, Simeon passes the baton of praise over to Anna. And then she, this elderly woman, this godly woman, she praises God. You notice the tone, though? It's, a praise, it's praise of thanksgiving and gratitude. We expected to read that. There's someone else. She responds to Jesus by speaking to other people Do you not see that at the end? She speaks to other people. I wonder, okay, since we're closing with it, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think is going to happen here? So she responds to Jesus by speaking to other people. Where do you think we're going to go? You think this is a preacher's dream, don't you? I mean, that was my first inclination. 
It's like God was teeing it all up for me to knock out of the park with an evangelistic cry, you know, or a cry for evangelistic fervor. She sees the Lord, she holds the Lord, she embraces the Lord, and then she speaks to other people. Let's go into Dundee. Let's tell them. There's an element of that. But can you see why it'd be wrong? To whom does she speak? She speaks to those who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. She goes immediately to speak to those who are looking to God in hope, to those who are trusting in God. Who does she speak to? She speaks to the people of God. Friends, do you see what is the correct, the correct application of this? Friends, the relevant application is that in response to Jesus Christ, we must engage with each other in gospel conversations more than we do. We must seek you and I to speak to each other about Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel more than we do. And I, I'm asking you, ending by encouraging you to do that. You've all thought about 2023, have you? This is the year when everyone books holidays, or the time when everyone books holidays or plans ahead for the year. Many people have done that. You've got your hopes, don't you? For the coming year, what should be the hope for St. Peter's? Shouldn't it be this? That we actually respond to Jesus Christ in the way that Anna responds. This year that yes, we are filled with just a heartfelt desire to lift our voices and praise, to praise Jesus in everything. But then what? For us this year, to be quick to speak to each other about our God. Wouldn't that be a change? Not when we meet up for coffee, to moan. Not when we invite people into our, our homes to gossip, to backbite, be negative all the time. But imagine what it would be like for our church if even over coffee at the end of a service or in each other's homes, we spoke to each other about what God has done for us. We began to speak more about the, the, the nature of our God, the mystery, and, and what do we have to speak about? The fact that unto us a child is born, unto us a son has been given. What was he born to do? He was born to submit himself to the law perfectly for you. He was born to be a light to the Gentile world. And he was born to suffer in your place. All of that sin that comes to your mind just now. He, he was born to bear it all on the cross. When you think about it, when you focus on it, one thing is for sure. This Jesus of Nazareth in 2023, he is worth talking about, isn't he? Let's bow our heads. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your Old Testament scriptures spoke of the coming of a king, the coming of a savior. We thank you that your Old Testament scriptures spoke of a time when God would suddenly come to his temple. And we thank you that in our portion of Scripture we see this happen in the person of a child. 
And so we praise you that to us a child is born and a son is given. We thank you that you have taken upon yourself flesh and all to secure for us our beautiful salvation. Lord, we end praising you for what you have done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.